The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. What's up, guys? Bill Amadeo from uh, McManus and Amadeo and Grable and Associates. And today, we'll talk about juvenile defense. And to be honest, um, I'm just going to kick it back to my youth for a minute. This one's going to be a little weird. It'll be a little different. So if you tuned in to talk about the nuances of juvenile defendants, this may be not the Facebook Live to watch. Because I decided, since it's my call, I'm just going to tell a story. And I'll start with this. When I have a juvenile defendant or a young person, you gotta try two times as hard for that young person. And it kind of makes me sick when certain prosecutor offices don't give a shit about the young defendant. When an office cares more about its conviction rate than rehabilitation, even when they get it wrong. Or when a prosecuting office hides evidence with a young person in the belief that they're doing the right thing. That just sickens me, and it goes back to when I was 15 years old. Now, I remember never wanting to be involved in criminal law because I kind of felt like if I got involved in crim, it was going to consume me. Pete Winter once said to me, when I started doing criminal law, that you're going to take this stuff home with you, and it's never going to end. He was right about that. But I remember being 14 and 15 years old and being in Atlantic City High, right? Now, many people will tell you that AC High was a great time. I'm going to call bullshit on that. Here's Atlantic City High, and you've seen me do this before if you watch my stuff. Ventnor and Margate went this way. Atlantic City and Brigantine went that way. What that meant in English was money went this way. And poverty went that way. Caucasians went this way. Black, Spanish, and poor whites went that way. Being poor and white at the time was, um, was a difficult time period. AC High was segregated. You know, they can say it wasn't, but it was. They made sure the Ventnor and Margate kids were somewhat protected. And if you were poor and from Atlantic City, and even Brigantine on some levels, you were kind of thrown into the mix. And people challenge me on that. What I can tell you is this. I know what happened. One of the things that's powerful about when I vlog is I don't lie. I'll tell you the truth. Go fact check my shit. You know, and 14 years old, I think the only thing I really had in my life that meant something was uh, baseball. You know, baseball was what I lived to do. And there were so many kids I was going to school with that were ending up in Harbor Fields. Harbor Fields was juvenile detention in South Jersey. And Jin's juveniles in need of service. And here was the sad part about these facilities. 
And I understand that juveniles, um, you know, sometimes they need to be taken away from their family. But I never knew a kid that went into one of these facilities and came out better. You know, I just didn't. What I would see is these young kids go into these facilities and they would come out with like, they'd go in with a bachelor's degree in crim and they'd come out with a master's. They became hardened. I mean, there were beatings. There was sexual abuse. And sometimes the abuse came from the people running the facility. Sometimes it came from other people that were in there, other children, if you would. And we lose sight of the fact that these are children. And I remember, like, being 14 years old, and 14 years old, life sucked. I didn't realize how bad... I didn't know what dyslexia was, right? And I had it. And they made you take a math course and a language course, freshman year at AC High. And algebra, to me, was a nightmare. Spanish class was brutal. And I learned years later that having dyslexia made, like, a foreign language or an algebraic course of geometry just brutal. Didn't know it at the time. You know, they just said you were dumb. And at 14 years old, becoming a criminal was not that far-fetched of an idea. Uh, the people in my neighborhood, there's a lot of criminal activity. You know, becoming a criminal was a normal transition for where we were. And my aunt, my mom, they were certainly against that. But there were problems at home. You know, Aunt Mary was sick. Um, my grandfather, he was a year away from dying. When his favorite son overdosed on drugs and died. That kind of killed Grandpa. That happened that year. And Mom was dating this loser. This piece of shit. And she's in an abusive relationship. So I'm trying to defend Mom. Aunt Mare's sick. Um, Grandpa's near death. One of my uncles overdosed and died. We're living in the ghetto. And in Ducktown in the 90s, what happened was there were the Latin Kings, there were the Pitney Lions, there were the Slums, there were all these gangs, and it was brutal. And if you were poor and white, I mean, reality is you got your ass kicked. I remember when I failed algebra and failed Spanish, I was going to be an actor of probation. And I needed a D in Spanish. I was close. But I needed a D in Spanish to be eligible for baseball. And I went to Miss Pataglia. She was my Spanish teacher. And I said, is there anything I could do just to be eligible for baseball? And she said, nope. Nothing you could do. You should have tried harder. And I swear to Christ, man, I was trying so hard. It was just, all oh, those words in reverse were brutal. And the gang violence was something that was horrible back then. I remember just getting my ass kicked every day. You know, you'd 
go home on a jitney, you'd find different ways to go home. And uh, it was just a tragic state of affairs. Couldn't really turn to mom. Because mom was with her man, who was a piece of shit. Aunt Mary's sick. Grandpa was depressed. I turned to Father Sullivan, my childhood priest. I begged him for help. What do I do here? Because the options at this point were criminal activity to survive. Suicide, maybe? I mean, there were fleeting thoughts of that. I didn't think that was the answer. We'll get into that later. I turned to my priest and, you know, he said to me, yeah, not really my problem. If you let the Holy Spirit, this wouldn't happen. We didn't have the money for Holy Spirit. So I'm watching all these kids in my neighborhood with all these criminal charges. Just it's piling on. And we're here and we're kind of fighting you know, you're trying to survive. And I thought to myself that day, juveniles should be treated differently in the system. It was foreshadowed what was to come. Because I really, when I take a juvenile or young person's case, I flash back to the early 90s of Atlantic City. To me, losing baseball at that time, it was just, it was horrible. It was the only thing that I really looked forward to back then. And there's so many juveniles that they don't have things to look forward to. Or they don't have a good background at home. You know, these kids are suffering. And where I come from, asking for help or therapy was not an option. You know, if you asked for therapy, you were weak. You were a pussy. That just couldn't be part of the plan. I had this idea. There were five white kids in addition to myself in this neighborhood there's a story behind each one of them one day i called them all up and i said we need to meet and we met on texas avenue on the boardwalk one of the kids lived in the chelsea area in the chelsea area of atlantic city he lived near Chelsea Heights. It wasn't great, but you were going towards Ventnor. And he was a good-looking kid. He was a good athlete. And I'm explaining to him and all of them how we got to protect ourselves. We need to work together just to have each other's back. That's all. So there's somewhat powers in numbers. If we can stick together, we might have a chance to survive all this bullshit. He wasn't about it. He said to me, um, my life's pretty good. I don't feel the problems you guys are feeling. And he wouldn't because he lived eight blocks north. And I said to him one day, you're going to be on that jitney. You're going to be on that bus. You're going to be alone. He goes, I don't feel your problems. Other kid lived two blocks away from me. And he was kind of strange kid. We were friendly. So what do you think about this? And he told me he's used to being alone. He finds different ways 
to go home during the day. And he's fine with that. Like, finding different ways to go home at this time of day or that time of day to protect himself. He started smoking weed and sniffing glue at a very young age. And um, that was his escape from this. When this is over, I'll tell you how these kids end it. Um, the third kid, who lived two blocks from me, he was the ultimate optimist, you know? He said to me, he's hoping to become friends with everybody. So even though he's getting f***ed up every day, if he's friends with everyone, things will change for the better. The fourth kid, he assimilated. When I say he tried to fit in, he tried to basically become a minority kid himself. He started walking a certain way and talking a certain way, and his way of survival was if you can't beat them, let's join them. And he got involved with some real shit because as he became friends with certain people, um, a lot of peer pressure kicked in. And the peer pressure led him to make some really life-altering decisions. He started dealing drugs at a very young age. And there was Drew. Not Drew Frito back home. The one that name I'll mention. <sighs> Drew, in some ways, has always been a hero of mine. Drew had really long hair because his family couldn't afford a haircut. And while we lived in a war zone on Willow Avenue, Drew lived in a war zone times 10. Andrew Free is one of the toughest kids I ever met. Andrew bought into this. Drew and I became friends that day. We kind of watched each other's back. The common theme here with all these kids the one fear factor, other than the first one who didn't feel he had this issue, was what if one of us gets killed? What if one of us gets raped? And I'm kind of, I'm leading this group, right? And I'm saying, look, I can't promise you one of us is not going to get killed. I can't promise you we're not going to keep getting beaten. I can't promise you we're not going to be raped. What I can promise you is this. If we kind of have each other's backs... And here's what I mean by that. We try to get our schedules aligned with each other. We kind of go to the same after-school activities. We take the jitney home together. Or we ride our bikes together. Like, I had this whole scheme mapped out of ways where if there's five of us together, we might be safer. We didn't have to like each other, but we had to work together. This was about making sure we survived what I call these four years of hell. And um, Drew bought in. He and Drew were like that. The other ones didn't. And we're watching all these horrible juvenile prosecutions just explode, right? The kid who tried to fit in by being a drug dealer, he ends up going to harbor fields where he learned about man-on-man -man rape. He learned what it was like not to give consent and truly be a victim. 
the other two kids, um, drugs became their escape. And the kid that lived near Ventnor, he never had criminal issues. He had a great life. I mean, he was on the crew team and dating and going to proms and he just enjoyed the high school life. I remember this day thinking, can I try to bring us all together? Because I didn't want us to end up being in the system. I saw at 14, 15 years old what was going to happen to poor kids in the system if they didn't get out of that system. And having no support there, it just made me want to fight everybody. And I kind of said to myself that day, um, I don't know if I can win these fights, but I'm just going to fight. I may get killed, I may get beaten, I may get raped, I don't know, but if I'm fighting, I have a chance. And that became like a motto for life. I couldn't turn to teachers, they didn't care about any learning disabilities. I couldn't turn to a priest. Luckily I had my aunt, I had my animals. And I thought to myself years later, how many young people do not have somebody to turn to? And how many prosecutors don't give a shit about that? The whole point of juvenile prosecution is to rehabilitate, not punish. And when we have a juvenile or a young person, I just think as lawyers, we need to go a step beyond because we're trying not to just protect that kid, but protect the future of society. A young person being sent to the Michigan Department of Corrections is not the answer. As prosecutors and defense lawyers, you know, we end up with like this theory of learned behavior. Um, prosecutor thinks everybody's guilty. Defense lawyer thinks everybody's innocent. At least the good ones do. And we miss it. There's another part of the story. There's this piece of the puzzle that's just slipping through the cracks. And when the juvenile has mental health issues or problems at home, the system becomes magnified. What do we do here? Brutality and physical abuse and sexual abuse, it's just never going to end, right? And what my feeling was in that fateful day in the early 90s was if we unite it, we can protect each other. Drew, I'm proud to say, is a sheriff's officer today. Tough kid. Overcame so much. So proud of him. We don't talk as much as we should. But I think Drew, as one of the peaceful memories of that time period back in Ducktown... The other, th um, other four, I should say, life took some turns. And before I tell you what happened with them, I want you to remember one thing. Us watching each other's backs, it wasn't that that was the answer to our problems, but it was a support system we could have utilized. And I felt if we would have stuck together, things could have ended so differently than they have. And the way they ended, it was just tragic.
all four of them ended up in the system. Different points of life. The first one, who lived near Ventnor, who thought he was something special, and he was in high school. College was kind of brutal. He ended up using a lot of drugs. Ended up in some bad relationships. Has constantly been dealing with criminal prosecutions. At some point in life, the brutality of life will catch up with you. Some of us have to deal with it at 14, some of us have to deal with it at 40, but it will catch up with you. And this particular young man, it caught up with him later in life, and he lives a really sad life today. He's not successful, he's not happy, he's in the system. The second one, the kid was a little weird, I found different ways home. He was smoking weed at 14. Sniffing glue. And, um... He's dead. Ended up with a lot of drug possession charges. And eventually he overdosed one day. And he just... I don't know if it was suicide or not. But he kind of ended it. The third one... Who was so smart. And so scared. And just wanted to be friends with everybody. He ended up killing himself. Because at some point he gave up. He gave up hoping that things would turn around. He just threw in the tail. And the fourth one that I said assimilated. He's at New Jersey Department of Corrections. Drug distribution. He's been in and out of juvenile facilities and adult facilities since he was 16 years old, I believe. And here's me and Drew. You know my story. Well, kind of. When you get that moment in time, and to me it was losing baseball, losing family members, being scared. Um, suicide does seem like the answer for a lot of young kids. And the only thing I could say is if you're having those thoughts, that's number one, it's not the answer. Number two, you got to seek help. You can't be ashamed to ask for help. And I mention that specifically because where I come from, asking for help was just not the answer. And when you turn to somebody you look up to, like a priest, because really give a shit, I promise you there's somebody, maybe a teacher, maybe a counselor, maybe somebody that's going to give a shit. You know, but suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And there's so many people I grew up with that have taken their own life. And it's such a tragedy. The juvenile system is not perfect. Um, I think the juvenile system needs to be more about rehabilitation. Because when we see a young person that's accused with a crime. What we need to do is really try to turn things around for them. I always say with my juvenile clients, you're paying me at the age of 15, but I sure as hell don't want you paying me when you're 25. We as lawyers have to try to put ourselves in the shoes of that juvenile.
And one of the things I can do is I can do that because I can relive it. The only difference between me and a few of those other people I mentioned at that meeting was that I had a lot of support at home. You ain't have money, but Aunt Mary loved me, and I knew that. When a young person's on that fence, you know, we're on that fence. Do I commit a crime? Do I not commit a crime? Do I make a decision that's going to affect my life forever? We got to try to work two times harder for that kid. We got to try to turn things around. We just have to. Juvenile defense and young people's defense hits home to me. Because I don't think we treat young people fairly in the system. I just don't. And I look back at Atlantic City with so much regret. I'm looking at my notes here. You know, if Miss Battaglia would have given me a D and I played baseball that spring, would that made things better? And was it her problem? No. Get it. But, you know, when a kid is working hard and turns to a role model for help, and that role model turns them away, one of two things happen. They give up or light the fire underneath them. And I'm very lucky that the fire was underneath me, but... Should have had to come to that. My story is not a great American tragedy. But sadly, I could tell you hundreds that are. First-hand knowledge. When I go through Facebook, and sometimes the people you may know, and I see some of these people, or I find out who died from talking to some of these people, I'm just amazed. You know, at some point... We were all in the schoolyard together, and we were all friends. And somebody wrote this f***ed up script, you know? They wrote this script where A would hang out with B, and C would hang out with D, but D and A couldn't hang out together. And somehow, we all became these products of this f***ed up script. And during that script... You know, when we see that happen, there's so many young people that just have their lives destroyed. I was looking up some baseball um, from my youth, right? I was seeing in Ventnor how, and I don't know if they do this all the time, but literally baseball, right? Ten-year-olds. And they're posting cuts online. Who made the team? Who got cut from the team? And I will tell you, the social status of the kids that made the team versus the ones that got cut from the team, it's amazing. The team mentality in life is just destroyed right now. The haves versus the have-nots and the this and the that. And, you know, I, I understand I'm an exception to so many f***ing rules, but things shouldn't be where they are right now. As I was looking at my notes for this juvenile thing, I thought to myself, how are we here? There were so many ways 
that the six of us, those kids at that meeting, could have had successful lives and been joking around with each other and doing group taxes, and it just wasn't meant to be. Survival could be a bitch. Lawyers out there, you're representing a young person. You are representing the future. We cannot have tunnel vision here. We have to try two times as hard. And if that means working nights, holidays, and weekends to protect this kid's future, well, f that's what you're supposed to do. We're lucky enough to put on a suit and tie every day and get a great paycheck. We paid our dues to get here, but we do have to give something back. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. I'm Bill Amadeo of McManus and Amadeo and Grable & Associates, and today... Our topic is the 14A Judicial Election with our special guest, Torchio Feaster. Torchio, introduce yourself to everybody. Hey, everybody. My name is Torchio Feaster. Good to be here. Thank you for having me, Sam. Yeah, thanks for coming in. So, tell us about the seat you're running for. Well, uh, there was an unexpected vacancy. Mm -hmm. uh, Judge Tabby uh, in the uh, 14A2 District Court, City of Ipsy, has decided that he's not going to run for re-election. Uh, as a result of that, uh, I got wind of it. I had a, a lot of different support from the bench and the bar, and people for some reason thought I might be a good replacement. And so now I am uh, putting my name forward. I'm out here working hard, and I'm I'm hoping to fill that vacancy. It's funny when Judge Tabby decided not to run. Right. I had a few people contact me. Right. They're like, are you going to run for 14A too? And I said, well, I'm not going to run against Judge Tabby. You would have been great too. Though. Eh, not as good as you. <laughs> okay. Let's let's be clear about that. Thank you. This man not only dresses better than me, <laughs> but he's the best dressed man in Washington County. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But um, much more level-headed. My feeling is, as far as me being a judge, one of the reasons I'm back in Slay and back in you, yeah. we need level heads on the bench. And I, I'll be at first to admit, I'm way too pro-defense. Gotcha. Tell me about the district court job, because I think a lot of people in the community get confused about this. Like, they hear district court, they hear circuit court. Can right. you break that down a little bit? The way I see the district court judge, I, I, th that's the people's court. The district court is the court that has the closest interaction with the citizens. So, I mean, whether it's landlord-tenant and you're trying to figure out if you're going to be able to stay in your residence or if you're going to be evicted or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, small claims cases or it's the start of all criminal cases and the start and ending of all misdemeanor cases, right. the district court is the people's court. It's the one that's going to have the most contact with, with the residents and this judge needs to understand the residents, be sympathetic to the residents, and be willing to, you know, uh, engage them and be wise with how he or she deals with it. Okay. Tell us a little bit about yourself, because I know you came from Flint, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm uh, born and raised in the Flint area. Uh, came down here uh, back in 2000. Went to uh, undergrad at Eastern, uh, some of the best years of my life. Uh, did well at Eastern, went on to law school in Dayton, Ohio, University of Dayton. Uh, after law school, I ended up going back to the Flint area, opened up my own practice, uh, which I had open for about 15 years. Uh, during that time, I got married to my wife, who's okay. a, who was a student here at the University of Michigan. Okay. Uh, moved back here to this area, lived here with her for the first four or five years of our marriage. Uh, then she took a job up in Oakland County, so we moved back that way. Um, we moved back here a little over a year ago. 
Uh, we, we, I've been working with the public defender's office, uh, raising my two daughters, trying to uh, give back to the community. Because like I tell people, uh, when I came to Eastern, I didn't know what I was going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't know if I was going to be able to be a teacher, if I was going to be a lawyer, if I was going to be a dropout. But my, <laughs> but my plan was to uh, was to give it the best shot I could, and the community here uplifted me, the teachers, professors uplifted me, and it uh, really shaped my life moving forward. There's some days I still don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I hear you, right? <laughs> it's hard, man. With that being said, tell us about this. You ran before, correct? I did. I okay. Did. And was it for Flint District yeah, Court? Flint District Court. Tell us about that election, because I know Flint's a different animal than Washington, right? It's very different. Very Explain different. Explain that to people. All right. So uh, I decided I want to be a judge uh, probably about 2018. Okay. All right. So at that time, we had a judge in Flint who had just, uh, just retired. Okay. And what I realized is that the names that were being put forward for that position were prosecutors and... and uh, and people who did not do district court work, people who did not even do criminal work. And I looked around at the landscape and I said, most of them don't have any real engagement with the people, with the community. Uh, They they do their job from eight to five and they go home. And what I realized is that the same kind of people keep getting these positions, then the court's never gonna change. And I decided to put my name forward for that vacancy. Uh, I got to the the final round, it was me and, uh, Another guy, a friend of mine, uh, who, who worked as a prosecutor, mm-hmm. and he ended up uh, having that machinery behind him, and he ended up getting, getting the vacancy over me. And so at that point, I decided that if I really want to see some change in the Flint community, then I needed to try to get on the bench to try to help move some things forward. And so I ran in 2020 uh, for another vacancy that had come up, okay. uh, made it through the primary, uh, went to the general, and I ended up losing in the general to a, a woman who had run for circuit court two years pre, uh, prior. Gotcha. Um, Flint's a totally different situation uh, than, than Washington County. It has some similarities in terms of, you know, everybody needs some support at times. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs to be uplifted at times. But Flint's problems are obviously going to be bigger problems in terms of the poverty rates, the lack of education, and those kind of things there. And so, you know, I thought I could do some good work there. Um, and I did for 15 years. Uh, but the resources you have here in Washington make it so much easier to try to help people. I mean, the and, reality is it's a wealthy community. It's a wealthy community. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we have the ability to do special things here. We don't have to, you know, uh, beg and steal to try to get the money for stuff. As somebody who grew up in poverty in right. New Jersey, and I did. Yes. And to be living in Ann Arbor and having a practice I do. Beautiful. You just, but you see such a difference because back in Jersey as a kid, a poor kid in Jersey, yeah. there weren't options for youth. Right. And I see in Washington, and I love Washington, yeah. but I do see a lot of things with the resources we have. I don't see enough being done for the youth right now. Agreed. You know, and diversity blows me away because <laughs> in Washington, and this is an important fact, guys, and there's 12% of our community which is black. Right. But yeah, I believe 81% of criminal defendants are black. Correct. And I just feel like, I'm not trying to bash the prosecutor's office, but when I see opportunities like Haida not being given right. for nonviolent offenses, right. can you explain what Haida is? Yeah, I mean, so Haida is a program that we have, the Homes Useful Training Act. And so that program is basically a program that w- was for um, young offenders to be able to help them keep felonies off their records. Uh, the program was recently expanded uh, to the age of, I believe, 26, 
with prosecutor approval right. for the last uh, three years of that. Which that's the key right there, <laughs> yes. prosecutorial approval. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So basically, um, if you're under, I think it's under 25. Under 21, actually. 21. Yeah. You go right to the judge. Yep. Under 21, the judge can make the decision on whether or not you get the HIDA program. Right. But between 21 and 25, 26, the prosecutor has to agree to it. And so the problem is we have to make sure that, you know, our prosecutors are considering the facts, especially the fact that, you know, a lot of people who come through our system uh, don't have those prior felonies on their record and they could have a future. And adding those felonies to these young people's records really hampers them. Right. So when I had my own practice, uh, it was difficult to hire people who had you know, been in trouble before, smart young people who could have a great future right. but couldn't get jobs anywhere yeah. because they had felonies. One of the things that young people tell me when they get a little older is that Judge Simpson played a vital role in protecting oh, yeah. their future. Oh, yeah. Tell me about your relationship with Judge Simpson. Good, good guy, man. Uh, I feel like a role model, even though he, he makes has, fun of me on YouTube a lot. He, oh, he follows me? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, so so Judge, so I met Judge Simpson when I when I, I came back here a little over a year ago. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, we initially had, had some kind of chemistry there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that he knew my story. Uh, he knew, you know, where I come from, what kind of work I did, and what my my goals were mm -hmm. uh, for the community, and to try to change things. And so we initially had had a little uh, uh, chemistry there, spark there, and he's kind of been uh, a good role model in terms of how to navigate uh, the system here, all the resources that we have here. And uh, although he makes fun of me, he called me a muppet. Uh, <laughs> he called me a Muppet in court on Thursday. You should see what he says to me in text messages. Oh, yeah? <laughs> oh, God. No, but he's been, he's been a great role model and a mentor. And, yeah. uh, you know, he has some great ideas for the community. Uh, he and I are actually working on a program. Okay. Uh, so we're working on a youth court. Oh. Uh, so that's going to be something similar to the HIDA program that won't require prosecution approval. It'll be a diversionary program. So we'd be able to help people under the age of 25 years old and try to help redirect them from going through the system and getting these felons. One of the things I see is when a young person, I could tell this from my experience growing up in Jersey, yeah. when a young person enters the system, they generally never leave the system. Oh, oh yeah, forever. So to try to keep them out of the system is essential. Now, obviously, if it's a serious crime, sometimes you need punishment. Oh, yeah. Which, and let me ask you about this. I'm a defense lawyer. Right. Everybody knows that. And I'm always fighting like hell for PR bonds. Right. I don't know that PR bond's always the answer on every case, though. It's not. It's not. Like bond has two components, as Excellent. you know. All right, so so in terms of bond, that's whether or not someone gets to leave jail or they have to stay in jail while they're trying to fight their case, okay? And so basically we have to decide, or the judge has to decide, uh, if the person... Which will be you, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Which it has to decide if the person is going to be a flight risk. So are they going to come back to court? What is the likelihood they're coming back to court? and uh, whether or not they're going to be a danger to the community. And so there are times when people are dangerous to the community. There yeah. are times when people are not going to come back to court willingly. Right. And so those people have to be held in custody. Yeah, and so uh, we need to do, uh, you know, make sure that's what we're doing in these in certain cases. I know we're, there's a push so that people, you know, can be released on personal bonds, and they should be if they're going to not be a danger yeah. and return to court. I mean, to me... There's, and this is what's lost a lot to me. There's a you're cloaked in the presumption of innocence. Oh yeah, we get that. Oh yeah. However, there are times, and I'm saying as a defense lawyer, when I understand why you may not want this individual being free right now. Right. 
they also see people wrongfully charged. It's not a one size fits all proposition. It's a, it's a balance. We got, and that's the judge's job. You have to take right. all those things into consideration, and you have to balance them and make sure that you're, you know, steering the person in the right direction. We can't let everybody out. You know, somebody's accused of, of you know, of, of a dangerous crime, and we think they're likely to reoffend. Then they have to stay in custody. One of the um things I've seen a lot in our circuit court. We have some really great jurists in the circuit agreed, court. Agreed. But I also, one of the reasons I actually wanted to hire you, believe it or not, <laughs> like Trovia Starr and I work together, yeah. Sam Bernstein and I work together. There's some really good young good lawyers. Attorneys. The, yeah. Good attorneys. Um, and I think Delphia since would have killed me if I tried to poach you. In our circuit court, have there been any judges that have been role models? I'll just talk about Judge Conlon briefly because I tell you, yeah. Kelly Roberts and Catherine Street are running an amazing court. Oh, they do. And there was concern yeah. when they came in because they hadn't done crim before. Oh. You know, when Judge Schwartz well, left, they're, they, doing, they're doing amazing work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's a tight ship there. Yes, it is. Have you had any connection with Judge Conlon? Because I think you yeah. worked in his court for a yeah, while. I, I, I'm assigned to his court okay. currently. Yeah, judge Conlon's a great judge. Um, you know, when I met him, one thing we both had in common is this bald head. And so we initially. <laughs> hey, I feel you, man. <laughs> yeah, it's good. On you, yeah. So yeah, now we so we connected on the bald head, headness. So, uh, but no, um, he's level-headed. He's reasonable. He he's is fair. Um, he, he's going to give defendants an opportunity. Uh, he's he's not going to be punitive. Uh, you know, he, he'll sentence you accordingly. Right. But he's not going to just hammer you just to be hammering you. And Kelly and Catherine and everybody over there has been, you know, tremendous. And so, like I said, he's one of my, he's, he has decided to endorse me. So oh, that's I, good enough. So I love that and I'm thankful for that. And I'm just, you know, humbled uh, by all the support that they're giving me. And, you know, should I win this seat, I'm going to, you know, do everything I can to, you know, live up to their, to, to, to their high thoughts of me. Do you think the job as a public defender is, uh, it's pretty difficult. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I always felt that you guys had a tougher job than the prosecutor just because, in some ways, the prosecutor picks their cases. Right. Can you explain the struggles being a public defender? Because I do think Delphi does a great job, but it's hard to keep a public defender there for a career. It is. I mean, so the workload is just so heavy. And so um, part of the good things that's happened recently is the, uh, the MIDC standards have come out. Okay. And those standards are basically setting a, a, a playing field for what we should expect from public defenders. And so, you know, I think right now we're cut, we're carrying at the felony level, you know, nearly 300 cases uh, a, a year. Okay. okay. And I think the MIDC standards or the ABA standards suggest it should be about half of that. And so, you know, Delphia does a great job in trying to, you know, give us breaks and, and, and move us around as needed because the job is just so taxing. Right. Um, and let's say, like you said, we're not like the prosecutor's office. You know, we don't get to pick our cases. Right. We don't uh, have a police force or multiple police forces go out to do our investigating. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's us and our clients trying to find a way to fight for their rights. And Delphia's done two great things since I've been there. One, she's hired investigators. Mm -hmm. So the office has an investigator assigned to it. It's not a whole police force, but we do have an investigator who can go out and help to get evidence to exonerate our clients. The second thing is she has in-house social workers. That's and huge. That's huge, huge for our yeah. clients, helping them to address their underlying issues, giving them whatever help they need, and being able to provide evidence of that to the prosecutor's office to be able to get deals is tremendous. Yeah, and I'll be real, Chris. I mean, I've been in the game about five, six years now, and I probably would have joined the public defender's office, but the reality is I have 317 cases right now. 
and I, I'm making a lot of money. Yeah. And the reality is, I wouldn't want to take the pay cut. It's half of which, a third of which you do. Yeah. yeah. And when I see people like Lauren Brown and Ron Brown, like, I see these great lawyers. Yeah. And you guys are pretty dedicated yeah. because you're not getting the money you deserve. No. And we're not going to bash the prosecutors almost right now, but I always feel prosecutors and public defenders should be paid equally because you're both serving the community. Right. Either protect the community or protecting the client. However, it is though when you join civil service. It's hard to keep somebody there a long time. It is. It you is. have kids, right? Yeah, two. Okay. Yeah, so, two. so I mean, it's yeah. got to pay for college one right. day. And I'm sure you yeah. made more money in private practice. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, it's not even up for debate, right? Right. right. <laughs> so, yeah. So like, like I said, it, I, I'm not doing it for the money. Right. I, I'm, and I'm, I, I, I believe that wholeheartedly. Yeah, yeah, so luckily, I have a wife who you know makes a good living, and so I'm able to kind of do things that are my passion. Right. And so serving people, serving community is my passion. And so, like you said, it's it's not worth the 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 worth it for just the money. Mm-hmm. You got to have something behind you that makes you want to be a public defender. Sure, some kind of underlying passion or desire to serve. Because if you're doing it just for the money, you could make more money doing all kind of things. Yeah. You could, and so, it's just not not going to be about money for that. And I always feel like the best judges are ones that were either public defenders. Right. Or, and I'm always going to want prosecutors, but a prosecutor, because somebody needs to be in that court all the time. Oh, yeah. You know, right now, like, I'm in 17 counties. Right. And I, while I know Washington well, I'm never going to know that court as well as you, who's right. in Judge Connell's court every, every day. day yeah. You learn, it's like a tutorial every day you go in there. Yes. And you can take those benefits and translate it to the community. Right. So I always feel like PDs are probably the best judges, but they don't get the same respect in elections that prosecutors get. Right. And I do think we need more defense lawyers on the bench. Well, I definitely agree with you. you. Know. Like I said, it, 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 the ju- the bench has to be, should be balanced. Absolutely. Okay? What you need on the bench is going to need some people who were prosecutors, some people who were defense attorneys. But we need a balance. We need a balance. Based on race, based professions, on, yes, yes, a lot of things. Yes, based on, you know, people who have, you know, um, but people who are black, people who are white, people who have been rich, people who have been poor. You have to be able to relate to the community. And if everybody on the bench is someone who comes from this side of the group, yeah. then they're not going to be able to necessarily right. relate. And in those judges' meetings, when you're deciding about specialty courts and policies and how we're going to handle this and that, it's good to have someone who's lived a different a different life than you may have lived right. so you can bounce those ideas. Let's say iron sharpens iron. And so that's basically what you need on the bench people who can, can 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 come from two different worlds and work together. So let's talk about the specialty courts a little bit. Right. The 15th District Court, Pat Chase, Karen Finney, Judge Valvo, do a great job with the mental health yes, court there. Yes, But we don't see that in the 14A court right, right. now. What do you think about the mental health court? Is it something we could get behind in 14A? We have the money. We have the money. That's it. The county is awesome because there's so many resources here. We can do so many great things. We just right. have to have people dedicated to doing them. The mental health court for 15s is awesome. Uh, but like you said... But it's limited. It's limited because yeah. it's Judge Valvo, it's Chase, it's Finney, and that's, that's you know, largely their staff. Right. We can open, open that up. We can have one in 14A. We can, you know, broaden it and have another judge also take on a mental health court docket. Right. That way, it's not just so much on Judge Valvo of having to carry that load. She pours in so much time and energy. And, She's a great and, uh, Yeah, and of, uh, so much of herself and to the people who come through that program, that, she, frankly, she probably couldn't make it much bigger and still be able to pour in as much of herself as she is right now. But if we broaden that to 410A, then I, or just Simpson, or just Fresh Hour, can do that also, and then we can help more people in this community. I would say Judge Valvo was on one of my first cases, and I never had a jurist 
politely deny my emotions as well. <laughs> she's, she, she's so pleasant. She really is. <laughs> Even if she doesn't agree with you. And Mr. Alder, here's why you're not going to get this motion. Right. <laughs> I was like, right. I was already well, experienced. Well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I know you didn't give me what I wanted, but thank you. That was nice. Yes. Plus, you know, having somebody on the bench who's pleasant. Yes. Look, you're my boy. I want you to win this thing. I'm behind you. However, I don't expect you to always rule my favor, but what I do expect is to objectively look at the facts. Yeah. And like, we don't always see that. Right. And I'm not here to bash the other candidates. Yeah. We're not going to talk about them today, but I do feel you have a lot more objectivity than anybody else that's running right now. Yeah. Thank you. Like I said, I didn't get into this to just be a prosecutor, just be a defendant. I've been here to make the community better. Right. And so that's where I come from and whatever I do. So as a, as a defense attorney or as a judge, I'm still going to be, like I said, level-headed. I'm not going to be a rubber stamp on one side or the other. Right. I'm going to listen to the facts, and I'm going to make a decision based on the facts. One of the text messages I have coming in, and I wrote this question up, we're seeing a lot of senior citizens right now okay. in Washington County being charged. Mm. And sometimes it's just they're aging. Right. But for, like, retail fraud thirds and yeah. stuff like that, yeah. what do we do with the senior citizens? Because I know with juveniles, we treat them differently. Yes. At least on paper, we do. Right. What about this? Because we're seeing this influx of elderly people being charged. And that's something we need to address as well. Like I said, we put a lot of time into youth court and HIDA programs and all the other kind of things for young people. But our elderly community also has similar struggles. Right. My father currently is dealing with Alzheimer's. Yeah. And so... Before I took his keys away from him, I, I, I he easily could have been in the system. He easily sure. could have gotten you know a, a driving ticket, a drunk driving ticket, or something else of, of that nature because he was not acting rational. Sure. And so we have to be able to help those people as well. They don't all need to have felonies on their record or retail fraud thirds on their record because some of that stuff is things we can treat and we could create a specialty court to address those people. And make sure they get the resources that they need. See, some people don't realize when an elderly person picks up a charge, it could affect their social security. Yes. Could affect their pension. Their could affect their ability yeah. to provide for their grandchildren. Right. It's a lot that goes into that. Right. And if it's a nonviolent offense, I think we should treat them differently. Agreed. You know? Agreed. And it's just one of those things. But I, I have hope that we can move in the right direction on that issue. And, and I think that's something we're going to have to focus on. We, we, like I said, we put a lot of money and effort into our kids. We have to respect our elderly sure. population as well. Our yeah, it's like protecting the future and the past. Yes. Think about like yeah. that. They've served us right. for so long. With you. Now we can't just throw them away. Right. Okay. All right. Any final thoughts right now? Um, we'll do more of these. Tyrone Bridges, <coughs> excuse me, is out there. Tyrone Bridges wants you on. I thought you knew. Okay. I'm getting a few other media requests from people that say, well, why is he on with you? Why not with me? Uh, 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 it'll make time, guys. Yeah, I'm sorry. Just give me a call. If you call Bill, Ty he can connect you. Tyrone's a great community leader, okay. good friend of mine. Um, he's somebody that was pretty excited about you running. Okay. And I want you guys to connect. He commented earlier on the post. Thank you. Appreciate so he's, um, yeah, he's somebody you're definitely going to want to meet. Okay. Looking forward to um, it. He's a big person in the Ypsilanti community and he does a lot of stuff with use. Okay. And one of the things that Tyrone and I always talk about is how do we protect the future? Right. How do we protect the youth? Well, hey, I can't wait to meet Tyrone. Yeah. I can't wait to, if, you, if you're willing to have me, be on the show. Yeah. And like I said, we got a lot of things we can do if we work together and, you know, Focus on it. Don't just give it lip service, right. but actually do it. Tell people about your website. Hey, please, yeah, check me out. Uh, you can follow me on Facebook, uh, Torsha uh, for Judge, or you can check out my website, uh, votefeaster.com. Uh, feel free to you know hit me up on there, and I'm glad to answer any questions and do anything I can to try to uh, help explain why I think I'm the best candidate. And here's a donation, just oh. because you're gonna need more of them. Yeah, you just gotta tell you. Thank you. This very stuff's much. not cheap, my friend. Not at all. You know, <laughs> like you said, this this is the wealth of county. <laughs>
So it's gonna cost some money to run a good race. Yeah. Here. So luckily, um, yeah, I always I always try to charge people based on their geography. Smart. So when an Ipsy person comes yeah. to my office, I work with them. And when a Dexter person comes to my office, I tell them take out a mortgage. I'm the best in town. <laughs> you are. You are. <laughs> so, but um, we're excited you're running. Thank and you. And we really want to get behind you. We want to see you pull this thing off. Thank you for having um, me. Grable and Associates. Scott Grable commented early. He's pretty pumped up. Okay. That's a defense lawyer. Okay. Just somebody who understands our struggles. Objectivity. Because, you know, <laughs> and I mean no disrespect to prosecutors, but I do think we have a tougher job. Because even though you're close to presumption of innocence, right. when somebody walks to that court, the general community thinks they're guilty already. Especially if, if they're in orange. Yes. You know? <laughs> the, the, the bias is just, you know, you know. And we do need objectivity on yes, the bench. Yes. I don't ever want a judge to hook me up because we're cool. Yeah. I want a judge to listen to both sides objectively. And I think we'll get that with you. Well, there can't be any rubber stamps. Right. Like I said, the standard is already low for what they've bound over. Absolutely. Okay. So we have to make sure we at least make that standard be held. We can't just bind over everything. I had a judge the other day in Flint. Yeah. And he said on the record, he goes, well, I'm going to bind this over. He goes, but you two need to talk because there's some problems at mm -hmm. trial here. And that's a judge I could respect. But he yeah. basically said, look, the standard's so low. Right. They said something happened. Almost that's enough to bound over. Yep. But it's a big difference between preliminary exams and trials, as you know. Right. And when you have a district court judge that's trying to give both sides, look, guys, you need to come together right. here. Because prosecutors, probation officers, defense lawyers, judge, at the end of the day, we're all on team criminal justice. Agreed. You know, we have to work together as much as we can. Agreed. It shouldn't be a cat fight all the time. Right. And we gotta go to war, we gotta go to war. There's we can right. do it respectfully. There's a time to fight, right. there's a time to work together. Absolutely. And like you said, respectful. All right, all right guys, check out Torchio. He would be a great judge. We're behind him 110%. You'll be seeing a lot more of him. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All Appreciate right, you. you the proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.